This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore humanity. Hi, welcome to this week on Sci-Fi Talk. This is episode number 14. And I'm Tony Tolato. This week, we had quite a few podcasts coming out as we concluded our coverage of the Tribeca Festival. And from that festival, I got a chance to talk to Jennifer Reeder, writer-director of Perpetrator, a new coming-of-age sort of film. Actually, it is a a coming-of-age film. And we talked before her trip to New York. I was thinking about this film, and the thing is, at first I thought, maybe she just threw out all the horror tropes and, you know, and then just started from scratch. But really, I think the tropes are there, but instead of coming... Uh, going head-on, you kind of came in from the side, you know, and that's what I like about it. Familiar subjects, but yet done in a totally different way that was, to me, very fresh. And I really appreciated the effort not to kind of do what's been done before. Oh, I appreciate that, because I definitely, you know, I I definitely set out to, to make unexpected moves in, you know, in most of my films. Not in a way that would ever be frustrating or confusing to an audience, although I know that some of my films can be both frustrating and confusing to some, to some audiences, which is fine. I mean, I stand by the statement that, you know, my films are not for everybody, but the, the fans who find these films, I think, are really, you know, very, very special people. But yeah, I like making unexpected moves, and I've done that since the very beginning. So it's not as though, I mean, really from the beginning of my career, making more kind of like short experimental works. So it's um, it's a kind of um, pattern or process or like way of telling a story that um, has always been with me, but that I've been able to with each film sort of either get better at or even like, ch- you know, change, change it up a little, try new things, take some new risks. You know, I would never, the worst thing that somebody could say about my films was would be that they are sort of expected or boring or predictable or not not risky like not not a challenge to even myself as a, as a storyteller so with perpetrator uh on the one hand that i wanted to um you know to really work with not an ensemble cast for instance that was the case with um with Knives and Skin and with a with a larger cast and from an original script. So thinking about, you know, our conversation with Night's End. Um, but I wanted to write something that was also a little less driftier than some of my previous films that that really felt like, I mean, it had some of the it had some of that sort of nuanced, maybe kind of melodramatic deadpan that I that I just cannot resist. Um, but I wanted to make something that felt like, you know, kind of properly Puzzle. It was like really grounded in reality in a way that I think, you know, Knives and Skin sort of hovers just above reality. Partially because I knew that that our protagonist, you know, Johnny's own kind of magical abilities, it needed to have all that room. And I thought like, okay, we're going it, to, it's going to have, it's going to be able to to get as weird as I want it to be um, only if like the, the kind of the plot is really, is really sort of grounded in causality. Well, I, I tell you, I, I look at it as a, in a way, a coming of age story, mm-hmm. uh, because she discovers who she is, and obviously I won't say much about it. But I thought Kia did a wonderful job. Uh, I mean, that's a lot on anybody's shoulders, and you know she pulled it off and had good support. You know, I, I think one of the things that maybe people overlook 
is how effectively you use metaphor. And in、uh. particular, in this film, I thought the use of blood as a metaphor was unbelievably well done. I really enjoyed that part of it. Yeah, I mean, I I could talk about scenes that were done and how they were shot. That would give way too much away.、Uh-huh. But、uh, but man, it was just I really appreciated that from the nosebleeds to whatever, whatever. It was just really、uh-huh. well done, and、uh, and I think that's one of the things that is really missing from a lot of films、uh-huh. is the is the correct use of metaphor,、uh-huh. and it's almost like a dying art, and that's really a shame. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought that up because it's 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 something that's really important to my storytelling, which which is so much. There's a lot of. I mean, I, I started out、um, as a filmmaker, but in the in the art world, making sort of like you know films in the in the art world、um, and the kind of experimental world. So that sense of poetry and and、um, and metaphor and visual metaphor. Again, have always been really、um, important to me. So, you know, even just the kind of theory around certain colors, you know, and and what that means. I mean, I feel like my the art direction, you know, the production design are 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 deeply essential narrative elements. And that's not to say that if you if you don't pick up on that, then you've missed it by any means. I think it's something that that can. Sometimes wash over someone, and they have a really good experience of the film, and they're not—they can't necessarily put their finger on like what has just happened to them over that, you know, 90 minutes. And I think it, a lot of it has to do with with、um, delivering a sense of of visual visual metaphors.、So、you have the story, and then you have this, you know, lots of other symbols and and、um, layers of layers of meaning. And you know, ultimately, the, you are exactly right in the sense that I wanted the blood. To be、um, kind of ever-present,、um, unrelenting, pretty magical at the end of the day. You know, I mean,、mm-hmm. over this past several years, when I've been asked、um, by the press or even in Q and As, you know, what what do you think,、uh, or sort of like why this kind of you know surge over the past you know five ten years of,、um, with you know women、um, working in like the you know working in genre, maybe even in particular in horror. And、I always like to say, which maybe I've even said this to you before, but you know, our the most sort of famous、um, monster, you know, Frankenstein's creature was invented by a teenage girl. You know what I mean? That's so I、right. feel like I, I feel like hold on a second. You know, this is not a this is not a new thing. You know. There's more of this week on Sci-Fi Talk. I'm Tony Tolado, so stay tuned. Trek Tuesday had Paul Wesley and Ethan Peck talking about their Kirk and Spock in Star Trek: Strange New Worlds. Well, we we actually got to know each other offset mostly before we before getting to know each other on camera as these characters, which was really fun because、um, I find Paul so easy to get along with, and was always very excited to see him, and then to have that sort of that foundational relationship, which I think really supports these this strange interaction between these two very different characters. Um, that we get to see a little bit of in、uh, in season two, and so I think it really added a lot of nuance to that moment when、uh, the momentous moment that these two characters meet. I do think one's relationship with another actor off screen or your general chemistry it does actually translate onto the screen.、Um, I'm I'm of that belief. So we we do get on quite well, Ethan and I. 
and uh, as as Spock and 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 Kirk obviously have this very deep friendship. Again, you know, this is all nascent. Like it's, you know, we we haven't figured this out. The, the characters don't know how important their relationship is, which is which is fun because they're sort of um, subconsciously, I think, drawn to one another, but they don't really know why. What will we see from Spock emotionally this season? Uh, we will see Spock further explore his his human side, and he does this in various situations and relationships as well. Uh, I think it's very apparent in his interactions with Nurse Chapel. Yeah, there's a, a a really wonderful situation where Spock can do nothing but face his his humanness that I'm very excited about. We will see Kirk and Uhura establish a friendship this season. You know, she's Sally is a Sally is a really wonderful actor. Very uh, very rich in terms of just. Her emotions are, are she so, are so easily accessible for her. She's um, she's a stage actress. She really uh, has such a deep presence. Um, you know, I, again, you know, I think what makes Spock and Kirk fascinating is how different they are. Similarly, he was able to sort of be there for her and fulfill some sort of need that she she needed she needed to fulfill something and she needed to sort of figure things out about her own self and her character's evolution and Kirk was able to be there for her and, and be a part of um, that journey you try not to think too much about how big of a deal it is for these two characters to meet um, similar with 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 my relationship with with uh, Spock and when they they first meet and so you, know, you just you know, you have to keep reminding yourself that these characters don't know how important this is, <laughs> that they're just characters. Um, and and I'm still new to that because I, you know, I'm still figuring out this role. And so I, 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 you know, going in, I need to calm myself down and not make a big meal out of everything and just sort of play it honestly. This is an interesting season for Spock where he gets to play his Vulcan harp. Yeah, I actually grew up playing classical cello. And so there's like, I would actually uh, relate it more to, uh, oh my gosh, what's the instrument called? We, we had a really wonderful musical consultant come in and, and sort of teach me how to play. Uh, oh my God, we did this so long ago that I, I can't remember um, what the instrument was that he played. I think it was the lyre. It was a, like a Renaissance instrument. Um, and so it was really wonderful to be able to incorporate this sort of secret ability that I have to play the cello that like my friends like don't even know that I that I do. They hear that they hear that I that I know how to play and they're like, Are you playing a trick on me? And so it was really fun to bring that in. And um and I do personally believe that playing an instrument is such an amazing outlet for emotion. And so it was very easy to, to connect with that. And and so fun to kind of um wrap Spock around this very emotional activity and and see what that means to him. You'll have to play the cello for me sometime, Ethan. I shall, I shall woo you. Can't wait. Katie Carradine has an interesting novel called Blood Divided, and we talked about that and much more. So what's it like to start, I guess, building the world, and what is that like? I guess you have to maybe mentally map it out in your mind, or maybe sometimes you put things to paper to kind of get an idea where everything is. 
That's a great question. Yes. So for me, world building is my favorite part of writing. Every author has their favorite thing that they love doing. Some authors, they love dialogue. Some love, you know, coming up with the plot. For me, I always start with the world building. And I think that's because my own reading background is so steeped in authors who created these fantastic worlds. You know, I mean, of course, we have Tolkien and we have Ursula Le Guin and I mean, just these these incredible ones, but also looking at like Garth Nix and some of the the newer authors, um, newer to some readers. And it's really fascinating to me because I see things so clearly in my mind that the challenge for me is taking the pictures that I see and transforming them into words so that then when readers go through, hopefully they see the pictures in their minds that I'm trying to paint because I cannot draw, I cannot paint, I cannot do any kind of anything more than a stick figure, but I love creating worlds and these different realms and scenes using the power of words to convey that imagery. I'm sorry, so it's interesting you actually get a visual picture in your mind about it. Now, do these pictures come at the opportune time sometimes? <laughs> Never! <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would say you know, you can do everything you can to tempt your creative muse to interact with you. You show up, you sit down, you're ready, but you never know if they're going to appear or not. And a lot of times for me, I've finally learned that you can't force this. And usually the best ideas are going to come to me right as I'm about to fall asleep because I'm not thinking about anything else, I'm relaxing, or it's going to randomly be at 2 a.m. in the morning and I've learned I just have to get up, go jot down the idea, <laughs> go to bed. Thank goodness my husband understands this and is supportive of what I do because it's it's not easy being married to a writer. I can definitely tell you that. <laughs> what about dreams do you get? Do you dream about your work? That is a really good question. So I tend to not dream specifically about my characters, but I have definitely seen settings and world building in my dreams. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a couple of authors I've talked to, and there's a famous story for Silence of the Lambs where he was writing the book and he says Hannibal Lecter comes in the room and sits down in front of him mentally, of course, and says, I should be in this story. Uh, so <laughs> I sometimes that. they take over and, and stuff like that. Yes! Thank you for understanding that. So, so much of the time, I know as as writers, we sound crazy when we talk about not being able to control our characters or not knowing what our characters are going to do or having no idea where a certain action or inspiration came from. And, and these characters really do take on lives of their own and you're living with all of these different people inside your mind <laughs> who each want their turn on the page it can it can get a little chaotic at times but it's also so much fun to wrangle so many different interesting personalities there is more sci-fi talk so stay tuned do you find that if you do your job right they do come to life and uh and really have you know, a, a life, a vibrancy that maybe some characters wouldn't have if you didn't put the work in. 
That is always the hope. I have learned for me that I try to let the character take the lead because when I try to force something to happen, that's when I'm going to get notes back from my editor saying this doesn't work. <laughs> and I can tell you're forcing this and I know you want this to happen, but it's not in service of the character and it's not in service of the plot. So have fun fixing that. <laughs> and then that's, that's what I do is go in there and try to say, okay, based on everything that I know about this character, what is a more realistic expression of them in this particular moment? And, you know, as authors, what we share about characters in books, at least for me, is the tip of the iceberg of what I actually know about this character. I go through and I do really intensive, in-depth character sheets for every character that I have. And I feel like even if there's information about a character, like I don't go through and tell you in the book what every character's favorite color is. I know that as the author, <laughs> I know what their favorite animal or flower or whatever is, but I feel like just having that kind of a backstory in my own head helps the character come across as more fully realized and more well-rounded. After my uh, Sci-Fi Talk Weekly, Friday had Fear the Walking Dead Season 1 Part 2 that I taped at San Diego Comic-Con Roundtables. And this was right at the beginning, so let's get to it. Next up is executive producer Gail Ann Hurd, who also serves in the same capacity for The Walking Dead. She talks about the goal of doing a spinoff, and then is joined by Mercedes Mason, who is Ophelia Salazar, and daughter to Ruben Blades' Daniel Salazar, who also joins us. If you can't do it well and you can't make this a show that could exist if there was no Walking Dead, don't do it. And that's why it's it's taken a while. Um, and the, the, but the, big, the, the biggest challenge was to create a, a complex story that was different from The Walking Dead. We, we had the same rules. I mean, the, the zombies aren't fast, you know, it's... But everything else is completely different because we're starting at a, a, a different time. Everyone, I mean, you, you, Mercedes speaks to this far more beautifully than I do. But, um, you know, we've had very few flashbacks to what happened when things were going down. We saw Shane. We saw that Shane was lying about Rick being dead. People still didn't give, forgive Laurie, but <laughs> I want to go back and fix that. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the same time, um, how we, we wanted to, to deal with how would the average person approach this if they didn't have someone like Morgan to tell them the rules. Um, and in a city where many families are immigrants, it's not, it's not the, the world of sort of in, in Atlanta. This is a world of immigrants and a, a, a very blue-collar East Los Angeles and not an East Los Angeles that has been misportrayed so often on television and in films as just gang-infested. No, these are everyday real lives with important issues going on, and we get a chance to see, the, see normal life in East L.A. before everything goes to shit. I mean, I was just, Gail and I were talking about, because she, she's well aware that I was a huge Walking Dead fan before I came onto this project. So as soon as I heard that I'm on, when I was done screaming and crying with my mom, um, I, I had all the same questions. I was so curious as to what had happened to the world. We see Rick Grimes wake up in a coma and it's just nothing. There's nothing there. And he sort of has to figure out as he goes along, 
Do you hit them in the shoulder? Do you poke their eyes out? Like, I want to know how all that developed in real time. So for us, we wake up on a normal day. Nothing has happened. We think there might be a, a flu epidemic going on. And all of a sudden, we're thrust into this world of absolute carnage and no idea how to behave, who we can trust. There's no cops. There's no infrastructure. Everything is slowly falling apart as the minutes are going by. I wanted to see what happens to people when that happens. Because like Ruben said beautifully, there are people who wake up with war. There's bombs going off outside their windows. That changes you. How does it change you? What becomes right or wrong at that point? And I love that this show brings up all those questions and makes you think. It's not just, oh, there's zombies on the show. It's it's about the human experience and human nature, and I think that's what's so universal. That's why The Walking Dead's been so popular and continued in you know most major countries. People want to know and want to see what happens to the degradation of humanity when, okay, rugs been pulled out from under you. Go. Now what? I love it. <laughs> the, Walking Dead is, uh, the Walking Dead is like the 12th of October of 1492 and this show is the 11th of October because nobody remembers who knows what happened the 11th the 11th of October you woke up and life was the same the next day you have these people who don't know who they are with these animals and this language and then the diseases and your life is changed forever nobody wrote about the 11th of, of October this is the 11th of October so, Walking Dead is at 12, and we're the 11th. I commented on the pilot how technology informed the characters of the walkers, and if they're not sure what they're seeing yet on their cell phone. Here is Gail Ann Hurd. That's how you'd find out. Yeah. And, and, and when Madison says to Tobias, you know, it, it, come on. If something were really going on, the authorities would tell us. Come on, we, we, and that's what we'd like to believe, but we know that that's not the the truth. Um, and we're gonna have an orderly yeah, yeah, yeah. evacuation yeah. of New York and LA yeah. in the event of a major disaster. Everybody will follow the rules. Yeah. You know, there will be no more than Single X amount of people for a yeah. car, and none of that is gonna happen. That is all bullshit. You know, it rings so true. Do you guys remember, I don't even know how long ago this was now, but do you remember the bath salt incident? Where the guys ate someone's nose Yeah. I mean, it was the same thing. It was like a helicopter view. You see cop cars and commotion, and then there was the zoom in. And I love that this is exactly that. And, you know, we were all gripped by that. I mean, can this really change people into zombies, in essence? And this is sort of the precipice of where our show begins. Of, when, oh, my God. When they said something just now that I think, for instance, how do you stop them? How do you stop them? Somebody. It's like, you know what? It reminds me of the, the person the person that ate the first pineapple. I would really like to... <laughs> or artichoke, right? I would really yeah, like yeah. to meet that person. I said, you know, you saw this, you take this thing and it's all spiny and weird and now what we do? No, that's not the way. Okay, so what do, let's give it to Mikey. Mikey! <laughs> oh, you eat that? Um, I don't know. Maybe we should cut it. Okay, so we eat that. No, no, you eat inside. You know, how do you stop them? They're getting shot. They're moving forward. Yeah. What's going on? Patatatata. No, they ah, you gotta shoot them somewhere special to stop them. You gotta learn. And and, and the person, <laughs> the person who's the good Samaritan, who just wants to help. Yeah. I mean, the, that's really over for them. So the instincts that you have that are humane, um, can get you into the most trouble. 
and we'll be seeing that depicted among the characters in the show how their their instincts lead them in a certain um, direction and how their strengths are also their weaknesses the survival remember the plane and the fell in the Andes with yeah, all the flares yeah, yeah. you know how hard that must have been to eat their own friends I mean but it wasn't to this, I met some of uh, the parents and uh, the, those guys in, in, in Uruguay, and it's, uh, it's still with them. It's still with them, and it'll haunt them till the day they die, although rationally they know why. It's, it was against every single thing, but you had to do it, or otherwise you'd be gone. Survival is a powerful tool. The thing is, I mean, I, I don't, obviously don't create the show. When you have a comic to base it on, you kind of know where it's heading in a general direction. Somewhat, yeah. So the fans kind of know when a character's coming or going or if they're good or bad. For us, we get to create that. So as exciting as it is to have sort of a, a blue book, I love the fact that I'm just as surprised. We get scripts a day before our table read. I'm you guys, we're so bonded. We literally come running in and we're like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <gasps> and then we, yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. We almost read them backwards. Oh, I'm alive. Okay, good, good, good. So it's it's exciting. It keeps us all on our toes. I, I want to see where Ophelia's going to go. Because I can kind of invent it as I go along. You know, the, the guys are so great about letting us um, put our own input, put our own stamp on it. Me, as an actress, that's Exciting. You're gonna be surprised. Oh man! You're gonna be very, very surprised. Diva? No. We, we, believe me, we have no divas. No. You just see Ophelia just doing her nails the whole time. Kill him. It's a good Off group of people. Good group of people. Solid group of people. And uh, you know the, the the other interesting thing is sometimes. If you know where your character is headed, you're you're already becoming that before in yeah, real time you would. So you are already plotting. In this case, you can't. We're living it, yeah. Yes. There's no anticipation. You don't know. You really don't. The other thing that's really cool is that um, you know that there there, there are people there there are scenes in this where it's in Spanish. Exactly. Oh, that's. I like the Latinos on the show. Oh, well, finally, right? Yeah. It took like nine Star Wars to have us up there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I just, the, the 27th century is going to matter to have an accent. That's right. Thank you, guys. And that is this week on Sci-Fi Talk. You can hear more of my podcast by subscribing to Sci-Fi Talk at Apple Podcast. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.